ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you travel, is there a taste or a smell that instantly transports you back home? For journalist Kate Evans, it's the fejoa, a small green fruit with a very distinct sweet scent. You might know it perhaps as the pineapple guava, though it has many names around the world. But why did this fruit that was originally native to South America and travelled all over before it got to New Zealand become a central part of Kate's childhood there? And why did it never really make the leap across to Australia? Kate Evans explores that history and the meaning of this fruit in her new book, Fijoa, A Story of Obsession and Belonging. Kate, welcome. Hi, thank you for that lovely intro. Oh, it's a pleasure. But first I should check, am I pronouncing this fruit correctly? Well, look, I think there are lots of different ways that you can pronounce it. And the name derives from Latin, which is a dead language. So I think we can say it how we like. <laughs> I'm going on expat New Zealanders who adore the Fajoa in my in my social group. But for many, Do they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. They travel so far in Fajoa season to pick up a box from someone's nature strip. It's amazing. But what yeah. do they taste like and smell like? What, why are they so appealing? <laughs> they are famously difficult to describe, the, the taste and the smell. People have described... It is a mixture of banana, passion fruit, raspberry, guava, but really it's it's its own flavor. You almost just have to taste it to, to know what it tastes like. It is kind of polarizing for all the people that are obsessed with it and completely love it. There's a subset of people who think it tastes like perfume or soap, which I suspect is a, an actual like difference in our taste buds because I can't even understand how it might taste like soap. But it's kind of like a fresh, tangy, sweet beautiful smell and really refreshing flavour. And the well, texture is quite interesting too. Well, you describe it so beautifully in the book. It's got this kind of jelly-like interior and then as you get closer to the skin, it's a bit grittier. But it sounds to mm-hmm. me, Kate, like it's not just the taste for you. It's it's totally entwined with your childhood memories. Tell me how it featured in your life early on. Yeah, so I grew up in a really small town, about an hour north of Auckland, just 500 people. And had a lifestyle block with cows and uh, one goat and a fijoa hedge surrounding their orchard. And there was one really beautiful big fijoa as well. And so whenever I got home from school, fijoa is always fruit in the autumn. So kind of March, April, May. So you'd be back at school and I'd walk home from the bus down the gravel road and sit under the fijoa tree with a knife and a spoon and cut them open and eat dozens at a time. <laughs> For some reason, you seem to be able to eat as many fijoas as you like without getting sick. I love the story of you and your dad testing lots of different things. He made an ice cream once, which is apparently mm-hmm. lovely, a wine, not so much. But you <laughs> later in life took up journalism and travelled around the world. What was it like to encounter this fruit in other parts of the world so divorced from your childhood memories? Yeah, so I'd get so excited if I found one. I remember once paying $3 for one in a Canberra market Good Lord. and being appalled when my uni friend told me that she actually had a feed or a tree growing at home. They just used to stand on them because they smelled nice, but she didn't even know they were edible. And I was appalled. After that, her mother would send me up bags when I was at university in Sydney uh, so I could get my fix. Um, but yeah, when I the first time you sort of cut one open as an expat New Zealander, you, it's like the smell and the taste somehow just transports you back to childhood. And as part of the book, I kind of wanted to investigate why that happened. And it's all to do with um, our scent and memory centers in the brain being really 
together and and the way that scent like fragrance smell memories form in a different way to other memories so the first memory that you form kind of remains it doesn't get like it doesn't get replaced by another memory when you have it later and so especially if you haven't had one for a long time when you smell that smell it's it takes you back it gives us this kind of intense kind of feeling of nostalgia and homesickness it's beautiful but it's sad at the same time it's quite an powerful kind of emotional feel well you talk about the the uh, welsh word for that uh and another one i think the portuguese one saudade yeah saudade uh, yes mm-hmm. oh, portuguese i can't pronounce any portuguese and the welsh i did not even attempt uh, <laughs> no, it starts neither. with h no, saudade is how they say it in brazil i think it's pronounced differently in portugal but yeah i love that because the fijo actually is from brazil and so they've got this beautiful word saudade which is kind of like a beautiful sadness a, a longing um, that's kind of bittersweet. So tell us a little bit about this fruit's travels, because as you said, it started out in South America and then it's somehow become New Zealand's unofficial national yeah. emblem and it's about belonging in New Zealand, but it's, but it's an import. What was that journey like? Yeah, that was sort of the motivation for the book. I, I lived overseas in Australia for much of it for 12 years and moved home just before I turned 30. And I was so excited to you know be home for my first video because I'd gone home, but you usually go home in summer. You don't go home in the right time of year. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to eat so many Fijos. And then I started thinking, like, why is that? And because I've spent quite a lot of time in South America, I love South America, I speak Spanish, that connection, that sort of unusual connection between my country and South America, like there are not that many things that unite us. And I just started wondering, which is the origin of all good investigations, and yeah, so over the years we're writing this book, I've kind of looked into how that happened and it's quite a long and convoluted journey. Like the Fijoa evolved in Uruguay and the southern highlands of Brazil and a tiny corner of Argentina. Um, it was, you know, indigenous peoples there had um, medicinal uses for it. They ate it. They used to make teas from the leaves. There are all different kinds of ways that they used the plant. Um, and then in the eighteen in eighteen ninety, a French landscape gardener who was traveling, he went to Uruguay to help design their parks in, in Montevideo, the capital. And somehow on that trip, he discovered the fujawa. I thought it would be like a nice ornamental plant because it has a beautiful flower as well. It's the lovely fruit. And he brought it back to his home on the French Riviera at Cannes and planted it in his garden there. And as part of my book, I actually found his great granddaughter and went with her and rediscovered that lost garden, which is a whole other story. But um, when he started, he kind of made it famous, basically. He wrote an article for all the newspapers. He got a beautiful botanical print drawn of it, which is on the cover of the book. Um, And I kind of announced this new fruit to the world and then started selling uh, cuttings. Yeah, yeah as you do, <laughs> monetize <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Marketing campaign. So well, then from there it went to California. Um, in California, they thought it was going to be the fruit of the century, which never happened, but uh, a few people started to select some varieties and from there it went to Australia and it either went directly from California to New Zealand or to New Zealand via Australia in the early 1900s. Well, it was really fascinating to see that it, you know it took such root in New Zealand culturally yeah. when it didn't in other places. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I, I, I still don't think I fully understand why it didn't happen, why it happened so powerfully in New Zealand and not so much in Australia, because it does grow well in many parts of Australia. You have more pests like um, fruit fly, Queensland fruit fly uh, is pretty devastating 
in Australia, you've got to cover it with a um, with netting. So it's possibly that. Um, it did grow really well in New Zealand. There's something, there's one sort of special aspect to the fijoa that separates it from other all other fruits and I think really kind of fit with New Zealand's egalitarian kind of idea of ourselves in that it doesn't store well. It's incredibly abundant in the season. So it starts off in March, you get you start eating your fijoas and then eventually you can't keep up because your tree's just chucking the fruit on the ground every day and you've just got too many and you can't store them for later. And so you give them away and you take them to work in boxes and you put it out in a wheelbarrow on the side of the road and you give them to whoever, whoever you can so that you don't waste this fruit. And in the process, you form connections with other people and your neighbours, with your colleagues. It's this kind of social connector um, across our towns and cities. And and I think we love that. Nobody in New Zealand ever really wants to pay for a fee job. Like it's this <laughs> thing that you sort of expect to get for free. <laughs> and there's some, like there was once a, a, a newspaper article here with the headline, is the fee job New Zealand's most socialist fruit? <laughs> and in some ways I think it is. And, and that's something that's really beautiful about it and something that we – New Zealanders really love. That's fascinating though, isn't it? Because the that kind of sense of community and generosity in the book sits quite starkly against the the backdrop of colonialism and empire, which is mm. framing how that fruit has travelled around the world. How did that uh, political aspect to it um, make you reflect on, on its path to New Zealand and, and how its meaning when it got there? Yeah, I guess I was kind of... Um I was sort of surprised to find that aspect of the story, but I shouldn't have been because the story of um, plants movement around the world is like completely linked to empire. Like that's how sugarcane uh, traveled to the West Indies and, and breadfruits from the Pacific were brought to, to Jamaica to feed the slaves with because it was a cheap thing to bring in. Um, like all through the history of plants, you end up finding these kind of stories of of colonization and and even genocide and and some of those I did find in the Fijoa story, especially in the in the Uruguayan part of the story. Um, and so then when I came to to write the New Zealand part of the story, I wanted to make sure that I talked to Maori people here about what the fruit means to them. In some ways, I can't and I can't I can't prove this. <laughs> I do. It does feel to me like. Um, Fijo or something that both Māori and Pākehā, like white um, New Zealanders, and, and and not just white, but New Zealanders from all over. I've met a, um, an Indian woman making North Indian pickle out of Fijoas. Um, so it's definitely been embraced by multiple communities in New Zealand. But because it comes from somewhere else, it sort of feels like it doesn't, for us, it doesn't have any baggage. Like everybody kind of embraces this fruit equally. And when I've been in Queensland um, at the Fijoa farm there, um, the, the New Zealanders that came to buy fijoas were from all ethnicities, like Asian, Māori, Pākehā. Um, we, we, all, we all love the fijoa. Um, but it, in, in terms of when I was writing the book, I then wanted to kind of explore um, how it had made, you know, whether it had entered in like Māori communities as well, and, and I found that it had. 
That's fascinating. It's, it's such a broad-ranging look at, at, I don't know, our history, our culture, the meanings we ascribe to things, all kind of encapsulated in this little fruit. And it struck <laughs> a chord with our listeners too, Kate Evans, listening to this Fajoa story while literally standing under our huge tree, delicious seasonal treat, which sad, sadly doesn't last long enough, says one. B says, as an expat Kiwi, I'm loving this conversation. The Fijoa is a gift from Mother Nature. And Steve says, I love these fruits. The taste is heavenly. It transports me to an exotic place. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. very, very distinctive. Um, oh, how beautiful. Um, just on that, uh, one of the men that I interviewed for the story was a was a rare um, American Fijoa fanatic in, in California and he sadly passed away before the book came out. But one of the things that he said to me was that the Fijoa um, forces man to his knees at its feet. You've got, to, you've got to go down on your knees to gather up the fruit, and that is man's proper place in the garden, which I just loved that. Like, That's <laughs> There's gorgeous. something beautiful about how it um, it tells us when the fruit is ready. We have to go down and gather it up and, and worship at its feet. Well, and you came full circle too, didn't you? You came back to New Zealand. You, you bought a bit of land with your sister and, the, and your partners. What mm-hmm. was it like to put your own saplings in the ground there? Yeah, it was so exciting to finally not be renting and to have to sort of know that, you know, these these trees would grow and and I would be able to harvest the fruits literally, you know, into the future and and pass on my Fijoa addiction to my own children and my nieces. Um, Unfortunately, the cyclones that we've been having knocked one of them over and (laughs) they're not all thriving, but um, enough of them are. I keep planting more though, because I just feel like I don't have quite enough. And I know that in maybe five years, I'm going to have way too many, but then I'll just have to give them away to my neighbours. Well, exactly. You're going to need many wheelbarrows, aren't you? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I love the bit that you write too, when when the plane is descending back home and you you say, I realise that for Joe is represented both hearth and wild, that sense of hearth and home, but also this incredible travelling and and diversity of of travelling that it had done. Mm. Uh, Has that come into balance for you? Yeah, yeah, I think it has. And and part of writing the book sort of made me realize that that's that's what I was doing. Like I I've lived in many countries and been this sort of international person, a, a sort of an anywhere person and now I'm transitioning to being a somewhere person and having having a deeper connection with like this part of the world that I'm living in which is Raglan Whaingaroa here on the west coast of the North Island. Um and starting to to be a bit more rooted and planting those fijoas was felt like a way to become more rooted into this particular place where where I'm living. Lots of people texting in with their love of fijoas and saying we always had a spoon handy during picking season. <laughs> Kate Evans, there uh, there with you. Thanks so much for joining us on Life Matters to explain to us a bit about this amazing fruit. Oh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Kate Evans is the author of Fijoa, a story of obsession and belonging. And it does have this gorgeous botanical illustration on the front that shows you exactly what a Fijoa looks like if you've never seen one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 